In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about Tamar the Great, who was the Queen, or... I guess, actually, if you want to really split some hairs here, the female king of the kingdom of Georgia during the height of its golden age in the late 12th century and into the early 13th. Now, Tamar, like, you know, more or less every single other female ruler in history, faced all sorts of difficulties in ruling because she was a woman, but she overcame these difficulties to lead her realm to a period of unparalleled greatness. Georgia would never, before or after, return to a position of such military dominance, such cultural distinction, such such financial prosperity. Tamar was, I mean, I'll tell you what, she was bloody kicking goals with both feet throughout her entire reign. She followed in the footsteps of her predecessors who had sort of set Georgia on this path towards greatness um, and took advantage of the the prevailing political winds to expand Georgia's influence, not just politically, but culturally and diplomatically and, of course, militarily. She widened its borders. She deftly navigated the political crisis of the time. She had to deal with hostile neighbours to the south and the Seljuk Turk. She took the diplomatic initiative against the, against the mighty Saladin further south in Jerusalem. Uh, and also, <laughs> during the disastrous Fourth Crusade, took advantage of the political fallout from the effective collapse of the Byzantine Empire to secure Georgia's interests and, uh, you know, fill some of that power vacuum that was left behind uh, in the wake of the fall of Constantinople in 1204. It's a it's a pretty remarkable achievement to lead any nation to greatness, whoever you are, but, but Tamar's achievements are all the more impressive because of that initial resistance that her rule faced due to her being a woman. But this resistance did not slow her down today. She is widely remembered as a preeminent figure in Georgian history. Under her leadership, Georgia's borders expanded, its culture, its culture flourished, its people grew richer, and its prestige only rose and rose. Tamar was amongst the greatest leaders Georgia has ever had, if not the greatest altogether. We've got a terrific story to get across today, so let's not waste time. Let's get stuck straight in. Here we go with the tale of Tamar of Georgia. Tamar the Great. Let's get into it. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to around 1160. We're not sure of the exact year, but it was around this time that Tamar was born to King George III of Georgia and his consort, Burdekhan. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the Kingdom of Georgia before we get stuck into Tamar's story, uh, in case you're not familiar with it here. The Kingdom of Georgia was a, a kingdom or an empire, depending on your definition, that was established in the year 1008. It was located on the eastern banks of the Black Sea, the same place that the modern republic is located today, although the kingdom was, uh, it was a little bit bigger. But as I say, established in 1008 when a bunch of smaller realms were unified under a bloke named David III of Tau. He managed to provide a unified Georgian kingdom for his adopted heir, Bagrat III. 
And Bagrat was the first ruler of the the newly unified Kingdom of Georgia. And generally speaking, things went went pretty bloody well for him and for his descendants. After years of regional power conflicts, the kingdom was stabilized and it focused on consolidating its position and power while neighboring some pretty powerful states, the Byzantines to the west and, uh, you know, various mighty Islamic realms to the south. Although as the years went on, the Georgians, they did stoush with the Byzantines here and there and it didn't always go so well for them. But the Byzantines and the Georgians, they put aside their differences in the back half of the 11th century when the Seljuk Turks started, started, started advancing further and further towards their respective realms. Georgia was a Christian kingdom, uh, one of the easternmost Christian realms, and so it banded together with the similarly Christian Byzantines in fighting off Turkish incursions in the 1060s and beyond. And into the 12th century, Georgia began to get on the front foot under King David IV, known as the Builder, and he took the fight to the Seljuk Turks, recapturing Christian settlements and defending the realm from a, from a consequent uh, Islamic holy war. Ultimately, Georgian territory expanded from the Black Sea all the way across to the Caspian Sea, taking in parts of modern-day Armenia, Azerbaijan, and eastern Turkey. And somehow, it managed to maintain its independence despite being neighboured by the Byzantines and the Seljuks, uh, and managed to hold on pretty firmly to its position as a, as a moderate regional power, despite the fact that it was neighboured by, again, the, these you know, quite significant regional powers. As we push into the, the late 12th century, the time our mate Tamar comes into the, uh, into the picture here, Georgia is flourishing. It is entering into a, a golden age because of the efforts of people like King David IV. Uh, the Byzantines are on the decline. The Crusades are o- occupying the attention of Georgia's Islamic neighbours to the south. And Georgia's borders are expanding further in all directions, north into modern-day southern Russia, south into modern-day northern Iran. Things are going pretty bloody well. And Tamar's dad, George III, uh, he took the throne in 1156 and got very aggressive with it. I talked about George's borders expanding. Well, I tell you what, this bloke, he was feeding the Turks the left and the right. He's capturing cities, occupying the regions around them. He vassalized or smaller neighbours that uh, that were close to Georgia. He, he looted and pillaged non-Christian settlements and, and was generally pretty bloody uncompromising in dealing with people that he, that he didn't think too much of. And nowhere was this more obvious than when his nephew, a bloke named Demna, uh, challenged him for the throne, rising in rebellion as a pretender. George III crushed the rebellion and uh, went after all the nobles that had supported Demna, uh, killing a whole heap of them in retribution. But Demna himself, he wasn't killed. No, no. Uh, taking after his Byzantine neighbours, George the uh, George III instead blinded and castrated him. Uh, so it's here in the wake of this rebellion that a teenage Tamar finally enters the story properly because in 1178, her old man crowned her as his co-ruler. Now, you might think this is a bit of an unusual move, particularly considering the dim view that most of history has had towards female rulers. But George did it for a very good reason. He didn't have any sons and he didn't want any more pretenders emerging from the woodwork, especially when he died. Uh, you know, to challenge Tamar and, and her legitimacy. He, you know, she was the, the rightful heir and, uh, and he wanted her to be able to stick around on the throne. So he therefore doubled down on strengthening her indisputable position as a monarch during his lifetime so that when he died, there would be a, you know, a smooth transition of power to her as an existing ruler. Now, of course, there wasn't, uh, but uh, you know, at least old mate George tried. He ruled alongside Tamar for six years until she was in her early 20s, and then he died in 1184. 
This left Tamar alone on the throne, and as you might have already guessed, everyone jumped in, hoping to seize a little bit of power for themselves. Not only was Tamar a woman, and therefore seen as unfit to rule by many nobles at the time, plenty of the Georgian ruling classes were still smarting about her dad's crackdown on those who had rebelled against him. So some of them kicked up a big stink about her legitimacy, just as, as you know, just as George had foreseen. Although uh, that there, you know, all this discontent that was fermented amongst the nobles came to largely nothing. You know, some thought about rebelling, some attempted to expand their own personal power at the expense of hers, but the clever ones cozied up with her and helped her consolidate her position as the ruler, which she did. And these nobles, the ones who got on side with her nice and early, they were the ones left in a very good position once things settled down. Blokes like, for instance, Catholicos Patriarch Michael IV, the head of the Georgian Orthodox Church, who backed Tamar to the hilt and in doing so really helped her establish her legitimacy because, I mean, you can imagine having the backing of, you know, the head of the Georgian Church is very likely to get people to start accepting you as, uh, as the new monarch. So... Michael was uh, richly rewarded. He was given the position of Chancellor once Tamar's rule was secured, so he did all right for himself. Uh, But Tamar was able to very successfully establish herself on the throne as a sole ruler and, and fortunately didn't have to contend with any serious threats to her reign as she began to rule Georgia by herself, although there were, of course, plenty of grumblings about a female monarch being on the throne here. And now, obviously, you know, a female monarch normally would use the word queen, But I want to talk about this because Tamar isn't often referred to as a queen. Uh, Most chronicles, even at the time, uh, written about her, and even a lot of the a lot of the historical content that's that's produced about today, for for instance, this podcast, refer to her as a king. And there's, I mean, the reason behind this is most fundamentally a linguistic one more than any more than anything else but it is it is very interesting indeed and and I'm choosing to stick with the the you know accepted nomenclature of calling of calling Tamar a female king because that's what she was known as in her lifetime and that is how history is, has has come to see her the georgian language doesn't have grammatical genders and the georgian word for king is is actually something closer to sovereign it's more of a gender neutral term although you know obviously just because of the way that history is, it generally only ever applied to men. But the word for queen, uh, its meaning is something closer to, it, it's more specific, it's something closer to the female relative, usually the wife, of a king. And while this word, this word queen, was sometimes used to describe Tamar, it didn't really and still doesn't really actually describe her role as an independent monarch. And so, because even at the time, she mostly went around being referred to as a, a king, and in time, the king of kings. Um, this is why you'll often see her referred to as a female king, because of the specifics of the Georgian language and because of the fact that that has been picked up by history as the nomenclature used to describe her leadership and her role as the monarch. So King Tamar, or Queen Tamar, whatever you want to call her, we're going to stick with King Tamar. Uh, she had a, a relatively smooth transition in, in a broader historical sense, into sole power. She overcame the resistance that people had towards a female leader pretty handily, backed up by some key allies. Um, although, you know, this support didn't come without some compromise. She had to turf out a bunch of ministers and courtiers that had been loyal to her old man, given how unpopular he was. 
Um, and there were other nobles that, you know, did everything that they could to uh, to limit her power, to undermine her leadership. And a group of those nobles, in fact, they attempted to expand the royal council's powers to completely take over Tamar's decision-making powers as king. Uh, the beginning of the, the beginnings of a sort of constitutional monarchy, monarchy, I guess you could call it. But Tamar, she swiftly arrested and intimidated the nobles into stopping, and uh, and that went nowhere. But the royal council's powers still did expand at least a little bit. Um, uh, but this didn't end up being too much of a problem in the long run, as you'll see. However, in the short term, it did kind of trip her up a little bit when Tamar decided that she didn't want Catholicos Patriarch Michael IV hanging around like a bad smell. She found her power to dismiss him severely limited by the Royal Council again, who had been men the people who had helped her get into power all of a sudden weren't so keen on letting go of it. So Michael stuck around for a couple more years. But for all these setbacks, she still did a great job of entrenching herself as George's new king, and she turned her attention to the most pressing matter before her now, her marriage. She needed a husband to produce an heir and also to lead the Georgian armies. And I tell you what, everyone was in her ear about who the bloke should be. After a whole lot of argy-bargy, Tamar finally settled on a bloke named Prince Yuri Bogolyubsky of the Rus. And she sent off a prominent merchant, of all people, to go and fetch him. And the reason I bring up this merchant is because of his truly spectacular name. This bloke's name was Zankin Zorobabeli. And uh, Zankin Zorobabeli, your friend and mine, right? He jumps on. He jumps on the fastest horse he could find. He, he zooms off down the road, right, to go and fetch, fetch Prince Yuri. Meets up with, says, "Listen here, mate. How'd you, how'd you fancy being the king of Georgia?" And Prince Yuri goes, "Well, I'm listening." And Zankin goes, "We've already got a king, but I tell you what, we could do with another one. So if you want to come back and marry our Tamar, that'd be fantastic." And Prince Yuri goes, "Oh, this sounds, this sounds terrific." Zooms back, uh, zooms back to Georgia with Zankin Zorobabeli. And let me tell you something, this Yuri fella, oh. He really was something else. Even Wikipedia, which which isn't known to be, you know, particularly florid or or over the top in describing this sort of thing. It's it's usually very matter of fact, very staid with its descriptions. Wikipedia is. Wikipedia describes Yuri as <clears throat> perfect of body and pleasant to behold. So just imagine what this bloke looked like. In 1185, everything is coming up Tamar now. She's got her kingdom secured. Her good friend Zankin Zorobabeli has brought back an absolute stud of a husband for her. They get married, no worries at all. And if you'll believe it, it only got better from there. In 1187, Saladin captured uh, Jerusalem. He recaptured it from the, from the Crusaders. And uh, Islamic power in the Levant was well and truly on the rise. The Third Crusade would, of course, begin in 1189 with Christians and Muslims going out at hammer and tongs. But some deft diplomacy kept Georgia, a Christian kingdom, out of this messy conflict. She sent ambassadors to Saladin, negotiated ongoing peace with his realm, as well as access to Georgian uh, and, and therefore Christian places of worship within the Holy Land. Saladin agreed. He guaranteed the safety of Georgian monasteries within his territory and exempted them from taxation. Very neatly done by Tamar, getting on the front foot, getting out ahead of the pack, making sure that she and her kingdom avoided being dragged into conflict with her southern neighbours. Now, of course, you know, as an orthodox nation, Georgia wasn't under the purview of Rome. But all the same, you know, some Eastern Christian nations did actually fight in the Crusades. Tamar, however, she kept Georgia out of it. And better yet, not long after Tamar's marriage to Yuri, Catholicos Patriarch Michael IV, who Tamar, as I mentioned, really wasn't a fan of anymore, despite his initial support in claiming her throne, 
He went ahead and died. Brilliant. That's that problem solved just like that. Tamar replaced him as her chancellor with a much more, much more loyal and, and suitable uh, supporter. And slowly but surely worked on filling out her court and her, and, her, and her council with other loyal blokes who she knew would back her up rather than, you know, seeking their own personal power plays or seeking to undermine her position as the king. And this proved to be a good move because it turns out that Yuri, even with his perfect body, was far from being a perfect husband for Tamar. For a couple of reasons. These two, they just didn't get on at all. They were not a good match. Uh, Yuri was constantly, you know, off getting pissed with his mates. He's getting pissed as a chook all the time, and he's just generally being a bad husband in that regard. But the other thing was they couldn't produce an heir. And uh, this, th- there were rumours at the time. I don't know if these were found or not. There were rumours that uh, that Yuri may have preferred uh, the company of other blokes vis-a-vis the old Rudy Nudies there, which you know may have been something of an, of an impediment to a, a, success, or the, a successful production of an heir there. I'm not sure. Again... That sort of stuff is obviously very, very difficult to verify. So it may, may be true, may not be true. But whatever the case was, they couldn't. They didn't have any kids, right? They couldn't produce an heir. And uh, before too long, Tamar's getting sick of it. And so she goes to a royal council and she requests a divorce. Her royal council now, you know, stacked as it was with, uh, with, with people that now are ardent supporters of her, are more than happy to bend to her will. They annul the marriage and Yuri is exiled. He's sent off to Constantinople, although I have to say he did try a coup or two on his way out, mustering support from, you know, the, the jilted nobles that, that Tamar had uh, had scorned previously. But all of these coup attempts, all of these rebellions and revolts, they all came to nothing. Despite the fact that Tamar, once again, was facing these impediments and these restrictions and these uh, challenges to her leadership, she overcame them masterfully. And this time around, she overcame them with the help of a fella with the unbelievably unexciting name of David Soslin. Uh, he really stepped up to the crease uh, for a hearing. Look, you know, look, I'm sorry if there are any David Soslins that are listening today. I really do apologise. It is a name that is entirely suited for the 21st century. Absolutely nothing wrong with it. But in a world of, you know, Yuri Bogolyubskis and Zankin Zorobabellis, David Soslin, I mean, you'll admit it, it, it does come up a bit short. Anyway, this David Soslin fella, he's absolutely terrific. He leads the charge against the disgruntled nobles that Yuri, you know, tried to stir up into open rebellion. He nips the whole thing in the bud, sends Yuri off to Constantinople with his tail between his legs, and, oh, what's this? Tamar, she's single again. Back on the old bloody medieval Tinder, placing portraits of the most eligible bachelors in piles to the left and the right of her, as the ancient traditions demand. David did such a good job of seeing off Yuri and his rebels and came from immaculate noble stock himself, he was actually a distant cousin of Tamar, that Tamar couldn't help but start thinking about having him as a husband. After all, the bloke had proven himself as a very capable military leader and that would be his primary role as her husband. Stuff it, she says, I'm going to marry this bloke. The partnership, I have to say, was much more successful than the previous, and David happily accepted his role as a king consort. Now, Tamar was very, very firm on this point. She alone was the ruler of Georgia, and David was just her consort, not equal in rank to her. You don't often get king consorts. There are very few examples of them from throughout history. It's much more common for there to be a prince consort, but a king consort, almost unheard of, But old mate David, he became one happily enough here. 
He accepted his role as, uh, you know, as I say, as a subordinate of Tamar. And for his trouble, he got his face on coins, he got his name on royal charters, and he commanded the Georgian military forces. But he was, in every way, a subordinate to Tamar, the king of kings, his wife. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Anyway... These two, they seem to get on very well indeed. And this marriage only made Tamar's already, you know, largely strong position even stronger, especially when she had a couple of kids. Her first, born around 1192, was a son that she rather inventively named George. Uh, and then in around, uh, in around 1195, she had a daughter that she named Rusadan. Now, both of these kids would go on to rule Georgia, just like their mum, but we'll get to that in due course. By now, with, you know, with a couple of kids, a couple of heirs ready to go, Tamar's rule was absolutely ironclad. Her claim to the throne was backed up with multiple heirs, a loyal royal council, a husband in charge of the military, and broad support from the people that she ruled. So, what is it that you do, I ask you, when you're ruling a kingdom, free from strife and conflict, where people are generally happy with how things are, and you, you, know, you don't have the looming threat of internal enemies and traitors hanging over you? What do you do? You revive the old expansionist policies of your predecessors, and that's exactly what Tamar did. As we move into the 1190s, Tamar got on the front foot and started expanding the, Georges of, the borders of Georgia even further than before. She made incursions into neighbouring areas and conquered them all one by one. And this is why some people refer to the Kingdom of Georgia as an empire. Under orders like Tamar, there were smaller vassal states that paid tribute to Georgia, much like an empire. For instance, in 1195, David fought the Battle of Shamkor against the El Gaduzids, based in modern-day Azerbaijan, and he absolutely flogged them, mate. He, brought home, he beat them so roundly that he captured and brought home their battle flags, the banners that they had rode into battle with, as a present for his missus. This humiliating defeat apparently caused the, uh, the El Gaduzid leader, Abu Bakr, to drink himself to death, especially after Tamar gave the city that she captured off him to his brother to rule as a Georgian vassal, just to add insult to injury. Imagine that. Not only, not only does your worst enemy capture your city off of you, but then hands it over to an even worse worst enemy, your own brother. What an embarrassment for poor old Abu Bakr there. But that's just how Tamar rolled, man. That's just how she got it done. She, uh, she also had a, her eyes on a larger prize than just smaller neighbouring realms. She wanted to invade uh, the, the Seljuk Turk-controlled Armenia, which had a very large Christian population that she sought to bring back into a Christian kingdom. So she deployed the Georgian forces once again, campaigning into Armenia, this time led by a pair of brothers, Zakar and Ivan, who had another terrific last name, the Makagradzeli brothers, as they were known, they blazed into the Armenian highlands. They captured city after city for Georgia, expanding its territory even further. These brothers, they did very well for themselves. They were richly rewarded by Tamar as a result. They were given part of the lands they conquered to rule as her vassal lords and Georgia continued 
to flourish. Tamar brought Georgia to the largest it had ever been in terms of area by the end of her rule. There's no bloody stopping her. Get around her. What a legend. But as you can imagine, she put a fair few noses out of joint with her forays into the south. I mean, you can't you can't make an omelette without breaking some eggs and you can't expand your realm without pissing off your neighbours. And that's just what happened as we move into the 13th century. There was one Seljuk sultan named Suleiman II of Rum. And uh, he was quite severe. He was very severely pissed off by uh, by what Tamar was doing in you know with her incursions into his realm, and so he raised an army seeking to challenge her. He sent her a very nasty letter, threatening her and demanding a capitulation. He said that if she surrendered and converted to Islam, that he would marry her and make her his wife. But if she didn't, he would crush Georgia and instead make her his concubine. Guess what happened next? Tamar summoned her army, addressed them from the balcony of a church, perhaps telling them about the grievous insults that those bastard Seljuks had hurled at her. And with the army all riled up and out for blood, Tamar told David to go and sort it all out. And like a good husband, he did just what he was asked to do. David marched to meet the Seljuks in battle and absolutely wiped the floor with them at the Battle of Bayesian, which involved 65,000 Georgians fighting against, apparently, 400,000 Seljuk Turks, although that number was self-reported by the Georgians themselves and might, you know, just be a little inflated. Who knows? But best of all, when Tamar took Suleiman II's brother prisoner at this battle, she, as was common practice during medieval times, she offered to ransom him back. Now, ransoming back uh, high-ranking nobles was a very, very lucrative affair, particularly if you had any royal relatives of the leader themselves. They, you know, these were the, the the saying goes, a king's ransom, right? So, this is the sort of thing. The, the brother of a sultan. This is the sort of person who you can really bring in a whole heap of cash with. But Tamar, she took a different approach. When she ransomed Suleiman's brother back to him, she set the price at one horseshoe. A studied insult. Rather than demand a ransom befitting the Sultan's brother, she humiliated both of them by setting his ransom at such a pittance, saying, this is all you are worth. And while all this was going on, right, while all this was going on, Tamar also had to gear up for quite a major political crisis that was about to affect her and her realm. I mentioned it earlier, the Fourth Crusade. Now, I really, I really, really don't want to spoil what happened during the Fourth Crusade for anyone who hasn't listened to episode five. So I'm not going to tell you exactly what it was all about. Suffice to say, you should go and listen to the episode and find out. I know, I mean, the first episodes were all a bit rubbish. I was still kind of finding my feet and whatever. But, you know, I mean, they're a lot funnier than the ones we do these days because I feel like, you know, I'd already... But now I've already covered all the truly ridiculous stories from history. So back then, they were the, the, the really, really absurd and off-the-wall ones. And the Fourth Crusade is one of the most ridiculous stories. And, and, and even if I tell you, right, the important part here, even if I tell you that the Crusaders, Christian warriors, right managed to somehow conquer and sack Constantinople, a Christian city, I'm not even scratching the surface of how ridiculous the story is, just with that with that seemingly absurd detail. That just that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? Anyway, 
Sure enough, Constantinople, it fell. It fell to Christian invaders. Um, and the political fallout from this was massive. Obviously, it was huge. Georgia was a neighbour of the Byzantine Empire and therefore stood to be directly impacted by what was happening further west. Uh, and Tamar could hardly ignore it. And she didn't either. The Byzantine Empire, it began to split up into various rump states. There was a sort of power grab, a land grab, really, as uh, as the Crusaders set up the Latin Empire or the, or the Francocratia. Uh, but other other fractional elements of the Byzantine Empire were sort of coalesced into, play, into empires like the Empire of Nicaea, which would later go on to reunify much of the Byzantine Empire in the coming years. And the Empire of Trebizond, right out on the uh, the southeastern edge of the Black Sea. And the Empire of Trebizond, which lasted for quite a few centuries, owed its very existence to Tamar and, and the approach that she took after the Fourth Crusade. Tamar couldn't help but get involved in what was going on, of course. As I say, this is a regional, uh, this is a regional political crisis. This is something that is going to affect her realm as one that neighboured the, uh, the crumbling Byzantine Empire. And so she jumped in, got stuck in with both hands, making sure that George's interests, as I say, were secured as part of the fallout from this momentous event. Her sister, her younger sister, had married into Byzantine nobility years previous. Uh, uh, she had married the son of the Byzantine emperor Andronicus I Comemnus. Now, Andronicus I had been overthrown and killed in 1185, and, and it's thought that... Uh, uh, that Tamar's sister Rusudan had had been killed along with her husband. Probably. We're not 100% sure on that. But uh, in any case, Tamar's nephews, right, the, the sons of, uh, of her sister Rusudan, had been living with Tamar since the 1180s, since the death of their parents. And as the last surviving male descendants of the former, the former Byzantine emperor Andronikos I, they had a claim to the Byzantine throne. Their, their grandpa had, had, had sat on this throne himself, and now with the dissolution or the, or the collapse of the Byzantine Empire in the wake of the Fourth Crusade, these boys see an opportunity to reassert their ancestral right to Byzantine leadership. I mentioned that the breakup of the Byzantine Empire after the fall of Constantinople was basically a huge free-for-all land grab as all these different factions and powers jostled for position. This was the perfect time for these boys to, you know, head off and stake their claim in the collapsing Byzantine Empire, and the perfect time also for their aunt Tamar to help them. She took advantage of all this chaos and supported her nephews in their endeavours to seize power, planting her family members on a Byzantine throne. She supported them as they fought for their claim, as, as they established the Empire of Trebizond as one of the successor states that I mentioned beforehand. And, you know, you'd think, oh, this, this support, very generous of her, right? You'd think until you realise how politically clever this move was for her. Rather than have a potentially hostile neighbour in the Byzantine Empire, right? Rather than have the Empire of Trebizond or the, or the, surround, the area to, you know, that surrounded uh, Georgia to, uh, to, the, to the west, rather than, rather than have that seized by someone who's going to be potentially hostile... She instead helped to establish a barrier state with her own family at its head. The Empire of Trebizond was never properly reincorporated into the Byzantine Empire, even after the Crusader states were defeated later on. And Tamar's assistance to her nephews was instrumental, right, in establishing a friendly state 
that was in close proximity to Georgia, acting as a buffer between Georgia and the Byzantine Empire. Given its close ties to Georgia, to Tamar, uh, you know, both politically and, and, and from you know purely dynastic sense as well, this put Tamar and Georgia in a very advantageous position. Rather than neighbouring what was more or less a regional superpower in the Byzantine Empire, Georgia now had a friendly state that was linked to Georgia by blood. Not a bad effort at all by King Tamar there, making hay while the sun shines. However, unfortunately, as uh, as the years passed, and even as Tamar continued her successful campaigns of expansion and conquest, unfortunately, tragedy struck in 1207. Her king consort the noble David Soslin, he died. Terrible thing. He died of, a, of, a, of an awful illness in 1207. Tamar had lost her husband, although she... It, it didn't really seem to slow her down, to be honest. She did crown her son George co-regent. Uh, he became George IV at the age of 16 or so. And the loss of David... I mean, look, I'm sure she was, you know, presumably she was heartbroken. She lost this bloke who had, who had helped her through through thick and thin, both, both as, you know, an army general and, and as, a, as a close companion. But it really didn't slow her down in terms of uh, leading her country to greatness. It didn't get in the way of her continued ambitions for Georgia's future. Uh, even, you know, David's role as the leader of Georgian, of the Georgian army was largely filled by the, uh, the Murkhard Grizzelli brothers that I mentioned before. Uh, they continued to wage, wage wars of conquest on the land surrounding Georgia. And by the end of Tamar's reign, as I said, the Kingdom of Georgia had reached its territorial apex, thanks to her efforts and, of course, the royal, the loyal service of both her, her late husband and the Mukhad Grizzelli brothers. Georgia's borders by now spanned across the Caucasus Mountains to the north, well into Armenia into the south, from eastern Turkey across to the shores of the Caspian Sea in modern-day Azerbaijan. And there was so much else going on as well in Georgia throughout Tamar's rule. We've talked about the blood and the guts and the conquest and the wars and all that sort of stuff, all, all, the, all the, you know, the really interesting crispy bits of history here. But there was so much else going on throughout Tamar's rule as she oversaw her kingdom through this golden age. Georgia had, as I said, it had flourished for some time, even before Tamar's leadership, but it, it achieved unprecedented success with her on the throne. It was a prestigious, prosperous nation, overflowing with wealth that came from, you know, not only its imperial tributaries and with the, the loot and plunder bought, brought back from its, uh, its successful campaigns, but also with the rise of commerce and industry across the realm. People flocked to Georgia, moving in order to seek a better life for themselves and their families with how, how wealthy this kingdom had become, how powerful it had become. And, uh, in addition to this, Georgian culture and language spread further than ever before. Georgian Christianity became they became seen as the as the protectors of the Christian faith in the East. Georgia was firmly Christian in defiance of its Islamic neighbors, and this was reflected in Georgian cultural output, art, manuscript, even its coinage. Georgian literature flourished, uh, particularly chronicles of Tamar's achievements. People bloody loved her, and it's not surprising, I mean, given how effective she was as their king. But one such work of literature called The Knight in Panther's Skin, it was written as an allegory for Tamar's reign by the poet Shota Rustaveli, and it went on to become perhaps the most famous piece of Georgian literature in history. In fact, it was so ingrained in Georgian culture, that up until last century, it was a traditional part of every dowry paid by a bride at her wedding. 
But even with Georgia, Georgian culture taking off like this, given its position and its neighbours, and the fact that a sizable proportion of the lands conquered by Tamar had Muslim inhabitants, Georgia still had a, a you know a, a somewhat multicultural aspect to it. Georgia was was influenced by its neighbours. Byzantine architecture was incorporated in, into churches, uh, churches and cathedrals. Uh, a lot of its visual art showed influence from regions that lay further east, like Persia. And even things like Georgian coinage was struck with both Georgian and Arabic inscriptions to cater for you know the, the more diverse elements of its population. And look, it wasn't just Tamar who built all of this out of nothing. The achievements of her predecessors launched Georgia towards this golden age. But Tamar was certainly wholly responsible for turning Georgia into a much more powerful nation, politically, culturally, and militarily, than it had ever been before. But of course, everything ends. And so too did Tamar's reign. Sadly, in 1213, she fell ill, never recovered, and she died that same year. In her early 50s, leaving behind her son George IV to lead Georgia as its king alone. And unfortunately, Tamar's death marked the beginning of the end of the Georgian Golden Age. I mean, think about it. It's the early 13th century. We're out towards the western end of Asia. So, I mean, you know what's coming, don't you? That's right, the Mongols. Within a decade of Tamar's death, the first Mongol incursions into Georgian lands began to arrive, and George IV was wounded terribly while trying to fight them off. He ended up dying of his injuries and was succeeded by his sister Rusudan, as I mentioned, who had to deal with not just the Mongols, but also the Khwarezmians as they fled the Mongols, uh, episode 17, get across it. And by 1240, Georgia had fallen to the Mongol horde, And while the kingdom lasted as a tributary, it never regained its former glory. In the 14th century, it was further ravaged, this time by the Black Death. Uh, It faced further invasions and eventually collapsed altogether in 1490 in the late 15th century, when a succession crisis divided it into three new kingdoms, Kartli, Kakheti and Imereti. Centuries later, Georgia would go on to be annexed by Russia, classic Russia, uh, before gaining a brief independence after the Russian Revolution, but it was reinvaded by the Red Army, incorporated into the Soviet Union, from which it finally split, of course, in 1991. And today, Georgia is an independent parliamentary republic, a kingdom no longer. But they haven't forgotten Tamar, one of the greatest Georgian kings of all. She's remembered as a, as a near-legendary figure, of Georgian history, someone who achieved true greatness for her kingdom. She became a nationalist symbol for Georgia when it was under Russian control, and today is still a towering figure in Georgian culture, as of course she should be, given the way that Georgian culture grew and and flourished under her rule. Despite Georgia being a relatively small and, and somewhat overlooked country in today's modern world, there was a time at which that nation was altogether very powerful, very prosperous, and very prestigious. And there, on the throne, guiding Georgia through its golden age, was King Tamar the Great. (music) 
But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of King Tamar the Great. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Half Us History. It's been great to have your company. And, uh, of course, going to close out this episode with all the boring housekeeping stuff that comes your way every single week. Halfhousehistory.net contact form there, links to the merch shop, the Patreon. Uh, if you want to get in touch with episode ideas, please do. Please do. We are looking forward to episode 200 next week. It's kind of snuck up on me a little bit. Uh, I'm probably going to do a little compilation of some, some shorter stories like we did for episode 100. So look forward to that. Um, but uh, yeah, honestly, <laughs> episode 200 kind of caught me by surprise and I didn't really manage to prepare anything special for it. So oops. But uh, you yeah, know, we'll have a, we'll have a good episode to, to look forward to next week. One of those little uh, seven short story type ones. So look forward to that. Um, but if you want to support the show, hey, listen, there is the merch shop. As I said, there's the Patreon. Uh, you can get across that patreon.com slash history. You can get access to uh, behind the scenes stuff, early access to episodes and show notes and what have you. Uh, T-shirts, mugs, uh, laptop cases, face masks, all available at the Half Us History merch shop if you want to get across them as well. And uh, thank you to those people who are going around and, and telling people about Half Us History, uh, getting the word out about this dumb podcast. It's, it's great to see new listeners join up every week. And if you're a new listener, welcome. By all means, welcome. If you're an old listener, great to have you back. If you're a listener that's somewhere, somewhere in the middle, good on you as well. It's, it's, I mean, look, you know how those download numbers show up? All, all the same. Doesn't matter how long you've been listening for. So thank you for being part of Half Us History. Anyway, see you back next week for episode 200. Looking forward to it. Until then, leaving you the question, of course, posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Warpod, who asks, I just moved to Atlanta, and so I set my watch to Georgia Standard Time. Why is it so dark here? Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.